Hello, welcome to another episode of Product Love. Today on the podcast, I have Jeff Lash from Serious Decisions. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be here. Thanks. It's great to have you here. So let's kick this off by maybe you can give us a little overview of your background. Yeah. So I've, I'd like to say I've been in product management, product development in some form or another pretty much my entire career. I started out working on some web-based product development, got into user experience for a number of years, and then transitioned to product management, which is really what I've been doing for the past 15 years or so. So I've managed products. I've managed teams of people who manage products. I've done portfolio management. I've spent a little bit of time on the technology side, a little bit of time in product marketing as well. But for the past five and a half years or so, I've been with Serious Decisions, where I work with B2B companies, helping them improve the way that they manage products and also the way they manage the organizations that manage products. So working on a lot of areas that product management leaders are focused on. So things like organizing and growing their product management function, implementing improvements to the way they develop products and bringing products to market, helping them better understand their customers. So I get to use a lot of my own personal experience, things that I've done when I've managed products, as well as a lot of what I learned you know, every day, every week, talking with lots of companies of various sizes and stages, uh, understanding what's working and what's not working in terms of how they do product management. So it's got to be exciting, right? Getting to work with all these different companies and you get exposed to a ton, a lot of different teams, a lot of different companies, a lot of different size teams. So let's start with maybe the negative. Where do you see product leadership failing at different organizations over and over again? And and maybe that is dependent on company size, you know, but take us through it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in a way, it's kind of the easy question to answer. In a way, it's kind of hard because, you know, a lot of the times I see product teams failing or product organizations failing, it's some of the basic fundamental stuff. They don't understand their customers well. They don't understand their needs. They're too focused on the technology, not focused enough on what needs are we addressing? What problems are we solving? They don't have good relationships and interlock with other teams in the company. So, you know, in a way I say that's kind of good because it's some of the fundamental stuff, but in a way it's a bit depressing because sometimes, you know, that's not anything new that we haven't, couldn't have said five or 10 or 15 years ago. You know, fundamentally, we view the, the role of product management as, as being responsible for the commercial success of the product. So I think where we see product teams often not succeeding or product organizations that are really not in a good, I'd say maybe standing is when they don't have that vision or focus. They're, they're too much focused on what feature do we build next, or they're too focused on the technology, or they, they view themselves responsible for just a piece of that, or they, they maybe recognize that that's the goal, but they just have not figured out ways to work effectively across the organization to, to achieve that goal. And you see that the same in organizations of all different sizes? Yeah, I think probably in, you know, I think it, it doesn't happen always the same, right? In, in large organizations, I think you, you have your own set of challenges just in terms of there's a lot of organizational politics sometimes and just kind of the inertia of the organization. In smaller companies, I think oftentimes the, they start off with a really good understanding of the customers, understanding of the market, understanding what they want to do. And I think sometimes just the focus on trying to deliver quicker and deliver more, sometimes they lose that focus over time. I've also seen companies where, you know, they've, the founder was a, was the technology evangelist, right? The, the founder was the first developer. The founder created the first version of the product. And so they're very focused on the technology and, and they think, well, you know, we created our first product that way. We've been successful so far. So they just kind of take that approach and without realizing, hey, maybe we did get lucky or maybe we did a good job, but being able to do the same thing for product number two or number three, or as that scales, 
again, the focus more on delivering stuff and thinking, well, hey, we, you know, before we didn't do this whole customer research thing, we just came up with a good idea and we launched it and it was successful. So therefore we can just do the same thing over and over again. I think there's sometimes a realization as companies start to grow or, or they oftentimes run into this situation where they realize, hey, what got us here won't get us there. So I, I'd see that maybe in smaller companies, like I said, that have more of a technical orientation from the beginning. Yeah. So some of that false positive, like you can throw a basketball at a hoop, it might go in. That doesn't mean your form's right. Exactly. You know, as I like to say, even a broken clock is correct twice a day. So yes, maybe we got lucky or maybe, or maybe, maybe that model worked the first time. But now once the product's in the market and competitors are starting to see that there's an opportunity there, you know, you maybe don't have that luxury of time and of just opportunity that you did in the past. But I would say, I think if I had to kind of generalize, I think a lot of it has to do with the culture of the organization, kind of the orientation, you know, is it, is it a culture that is very technology focused? Is it a culture that's very sales focused on bringing the next deal in? Is it a culture that's very much focused on versus, you know, a culture that's focused on, you know, really let's understand the customers, let's understand the, the market and the opportunities and their needs, and let's design everything we do around that. So as far as them doing something differently, you know, is this a matter of training, is a mentality, hiring, attributes? I mean, what should product leadership be doing differently so they're not running into these issues? I think it always probably starts with a realization of, you know, where we are and what we need to do differently. One of the things we do a lot of times when we start working with the company is, is do some assessments. And sometimes these are, you know, assessments that our clients can do themselves. Sometimes they're things that we do for them, but really get a sense of, you know, where are we doing well and what do we need to improve on? And I think a lot of it is, is having the right perspective <laughs> to probably put it nicely, right? So understanding, hey, you know, we haven't done a good job in the past. You know, we, we haven't spent enough time understanding our customers or, you know, yeah, we did a great job with this one product when we brought it to market, but that was five years ago. And now competitors are beating us because they're doing a better job. So I think some honest self-reflection is usually the first part. If you don't realize that there's a problem, you can't fix it. I think the second thing is probably then making sure from a leadership perspective, you know, I, I like to talk about the role of the you know managers of product managers. And I think that's a really important role that sometimes we overlook. We can talk all we want about how you need to get out of the office and talk with customers. But then it becomes a question of, well, do our people have time to do that? Do they have the skills to do that? You know, we might say, oh, you need to get out of the office and talk to customers, but are we giving them the right direction in terms of which customers they should or shouldn't be talking to? And if we say that, but then we expect them to be at every standup and spend eight hours a day with the development team doing Scrum, it's going to be very difficult to do that. So I think part of it is having that sense of, you know, what are the things we need to do to get our product team doing the right things? And also the role of leaders and managers to make sure that they actually provide the leeway for people to do that. So, you know, a simple example is trying to remove obstacles. If people say, hey, I'd love to talk with customers more, but the sales team won't let me because they think they own the customer relationship. Well, then the product leader's job is to talk with the sales leader and figure out how do we make this happen or figure out, hey, maybe there are prospects we should be talking to or non-customers rather than trying to talk with our customers if sales feels like they own that relationship. So, you know, in terms of what folks should be doing differently, I think it's not just enough to say, have some grand platitudes about, we need to better understand our customers and spend more time with them. It's about translating that into actions and plans and making sure that you're supporting your team in being able to do those things. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was talking to David Schwartz. He runs product over at Wix, now a $5 billion public company, right? 
and he talks to three customers every single day. And obviously they have a ton of customers. So there's a big base to touch on there. And maybe you're a startup, you only have 20 customers. It's hard to talk to three every single day. But what I found really interesting about that is even at his level, huge organization now, not huge, but I think they're up to, you know, 25, maybe 2,500 people, 2,000 people, over a thousand people. He's still talking to customers every single day. Yeah. So I, when I read, uh, there was one product team I managed and I created this sign. I had a big whiteboard in my office. And if you've ever been to a, you know, a industrial or manufacturing facility, you've probably seen the sign that says, you know, this workspace has gone, you know, X number of days without a life-threatening injury or something like that, or, or time lost work. So I created a sign that said, you know, I've gone X number of days without talking to a customer. And it was, you know, I saw it every morning when I walked in, my team saw it every morning or every day when they walked in or every time they came into my office. So it was a constant reminder if that number, and I'd love to say I was as good as, as David in doing three a day, I was not certainly doing that. But you know, if that number started getting to two or three or four or whatever, you know, that was a reminder to me and a reminder to my team. And then when I, every time I talked to a customer, I would update it. So it was you know, something simple like that. Part of that is we, we can't just talk the talk. We got to walk the walk. We got to do it ourselves and show people that you know, as leaders, we're doing the things that we expect them to do, but also having those regular reminders and some incentives in place, also some some consequences if you don't do those things. But I think that's probably a big gap that I see is that a lot of times we, we talk about the things we want product people to be doing, but then we don't actually provide a space or provide help for them to be able to do the things we, we expect or we need them to do. So how can leaders do a better job setting priority and, and allocating funds maybe properly to those priorities? Is it a matter of saying, hey, the most important thing is talk to customers. So make sure you're doing three of those a day or three of those a week or whatever the number happens to be. And that's kind of like the rock that fills up, you know, the glass before all of the sand of the development meetings, the scrum meetings, the stand-ups, what have you get filled in. Is that an approach? I, I think that's definitely part of it, you know, setting those priorities and, and I call it providing air cover, right? So, you know, when let's take a simple example, cause I see this a lot, right? When the product manager says, Hey, I'm going to go spend a day going to a conference or going to visit some customers and the development team says, wait a second, you know, we can't, you know, we, we need you here eight hours a day to answer questions about our stories. That's where the product leader needs to come in and provide air cover and say, no, you know, the product manager's job is not to spend eight hours a day answering questions about user stories. First of all, hopefully they've done a good job writing user stories. So there shouldn't be a lot of questions about them that require eight hours a day. But secondly, saying, look, you know, this is important in order for us to make sure we're the agile teams are working on the right user stories, then we need to spend time with customers. So whether that's with the team or whether that's with engineering management, making sure that they provide that air cover to, to make that happen. I think part of it is also then, you know, probably one cause of some of these challenges is product leaders or product teams that are trying to do too much. So when you keep throwing additional projects, additional, oh, we need to add this integration or we need to work on this product thing, right? It's, there's a limited amount of time in the day. So when I manage a team, I'd rather see my team pick one or two or three things to really focus on and do well than try and do 15 things badly. So for example, there was one at one point where we were, I was managing a product and we were starting to lose in the market more than we had been, right? We were still doing okay, but there were some competitors that were starting to come up that, you know, maybe we hadn't faced in the past. And so there was someone on my team, we agreed and said, look, you know, win-loss analysis is something we really should be doing. So I didn't give her 18 different projects to work. And I said, look, for the next quarter, I want you to do a bunch of win-loss analysis. And she agreed and I enabled her and I showed her how to do it and supported her when she had some pushback from sales. And, and we made it happen and she learned some good things out of that. And I think if I had given her 
10 different projects to work on, it wouldn't have happened. But because it was pretty clear, you know, what we needed to spend time on, and I was able to tie that to the overall goal, right, which is the commercial success of the product, we were able to pretty clear and we were able to draw the line to say, hey, if we do these, if we're seeing these problems with the product, we can draw a direct line to here's the activities we should do that will help us address those problems. Now, is part of that driven by just being understaffed or inappropriately resourced too? Like I think about, you know, spending eight hours a day with development, right? Is that a need, especially in an agile environment to have a real product owner, have more product owners in addition to the product managers and be able to split up the responsibility there? Well, I always like to say, I don't think I've ever met an organization that has too many resources and not enough things to do, <laughs> right? If you're in that situation, you resolve that pretty quickly, well, right? True. So whether it's a startup or whether it's a you know multi-billion dollar organization, every product team I talk to says, oh, we're understaffed. We don't have enough resources. There's too many things we want to do. And I think, you know, honestly, there there's definitely some truth to that in, in many cases. So one of the things we do at Serious Incisions is we collect a lot of benchmark data. So we can help our clients. And if they say, hey, you know, for X number of product managers, we have Y number of product marketers and Z number of developers, we can tell them, look, is that, you know, how does that compare to peers? And sometimes the answer is, look, you know, if you've got 50 developers for every one product manager, yeah, you know, there might be, that is a, a ratio that's out of whack and we got to figure out how to fix that. But the reality is even in companies that have the right number of resources and ratios, we still have this challenge and this problem. I think part of it is a misunderstanding of the role of product manager. And this is something we spend a lot of time work with our clients on is making sure people within product management understand what their roles and responsibilities are and making sure other people understand. I've talked with a lot of development teams or developers where they think that the only thing the product manager is there for is to you know write user stories and feed them to them every day or every sprint. And when we say, well, actually, you know, product managers are doing customer research and they're doing competitive analysis and they probably are doing pricing and concept testing and they're collecting customer feedback and doing all these other things that the scrum team doesn't see on a day-to-day basis, you know, their, their eyes kind of open up and they sometimes just don't even realize that that's part of the role. So I think there's definitely some clarity and communication around roles and responsibilities that, that can help people understand. I think to your question, yeah, there are certainly times where we say, look, you know, in this situation, it may make sense to have multiple people involved. So whether it's splitting out the role of product owner versus product manager or saying, look, you know, if the product manager needs to go out for a couple of days to do customer research, is there someone else who can be their stand-in? Can they, is there a business analyst? Is there a, a user experience designer? Is there someone else who can answer those questions in the meantime that we trust to give good answers in the absence of the product manager? We don't have a firm view on, you know, can one person be both product owner and product manager? I know there's a lot of people who feel very strongly that, you know, oh, the product owner must be the product manager. There's no other way to do it. And there's other people who feel very strongly that, oh, no, there's no way one person can play those both roles. And, and we view it a little bit differently because it does depend. So, for example, we've identified, look, there's, there's seven different factors you need to look at to determine whether the product manager can be the product owner or not. And, and those, you know, you might get different answers even within the same company. So, for example, if I've got a product that is not in the market yet and we're just developing it for the first time, we probably want to have one person be, you know, very involved in that because they're going to not only be involved in what goes into the product, but the commercialization and helping with the go-to-market versus if we have a product that requires a lot of, that it's in the market and requires a lot of sales support and requires a lot of help to, you know, deal with the day-to-day operations, 
and we're not maybe investing a ton of money and resources and enhancements in the product, then that might say, well, maybe then we could split the product owner versus product manager role because A, there's a lot of other things the product manager needs to be doing. And B, there are, you know, there's maybe less detailed day-to-day work required for that person who's working with the scrum team. So I think a lot of times people like to look at it pretty black and white, like, you know, what's the right number we should have, or, you know, we have to do it one way or the other. And we view it a little bit more nuanced, but a lot of what we, what I've helped with clients with is saying, look, like, let's look at your situation. And if you don't have some other roles in place, then it makes the product manager's job harder. So when we talk about resourcing, it's not just, should we have a product owner versus product manager, but, you know, do we have user experience designers? Do we have project managers? Do we have sales engineers or pre-sales support, because if we don't have some of those other functions in place, then oftentimes a lot of that work is dumped on the product managers, whether it should be or not, they end up bearing the brunt of that. So therefore it makes it, you know, just those more things that they are responsible for. So I think things like that all contribute to this same topic we're talking about in terms of, you know, if we want product managers to better understand their customers and we want them to focus on some things strategically, we need to make sure we're investing in the right places. And that may not just be in the product management role specifically. Interesting. So you guys have a a framework you take people through that kind of asks them a series of questions and helps them look at, you know, how the role could or should be broken up between product managers, maybe technical product managers, product owners, UX, et cetera. Yeah, there's a couple of different things. So specifically on this, on the topic of product owner versus product manager, that one comes up a lot. So it's a framework that says, look, you know, based on your answers to these seven questions, you know, it either points you in the direction of one person wearing two hats or two people wearing two hats. But we also then say, look, you know, either way you go, there are pros and cons. So for example, if we say that we want to split the role and have, you know, one person be product manager, one person product owner, that doesn't automatically mean you're going to be super successful, right? There are downsides to that. So for example, how do we make sure that there's strong communication between the two roles? So a lot of what we do is not just that advice, but then saying, all right, well, here's the things, the potential pitfalls and how do you avoid those? And yeah, and and that's the big one. I mean, certainly user experience comes up a lot as well. We work with a lot of large enterprise companies. So sometimes that's where product managers are expected to play a role in the sales process. So understanding you know, when should product managers be doing support of specific sales deals versus is there another function like sales engineering that could or should be helping? We deal with a lot of companies that have not maybe invested a lot in the engineering organization. So that's where there may be a lack of project or program management or testing or things like that. So obviously we can't necessarily fix those things overnight, but at least acknowledging, hey, here's some of the reasons why we're having some of these challenges and, and what are some ways that we can try to free up some, some of the product managers time or shift some of those responsibilities elsewhere. So talk to me about what PMs could be doing to work more effectively in agile environments. So the biggest thing that we see is in an agile environment, and I'll say, well, let me, let me stick step back. The first agile project I personally worked on, I think was about 14 years ago. So I've been involved in it in some form or fashion for a long time. I think when done well, Agile can be a really beneficial process. You know, back then it was a a novel concept. Now, certainly it's the de facto process we see being used. From our research, about 80% of companies are, uh, B2B companies are using Agile in some form or another. That being said, Agile is not a magic wand. Agile, if implemented incorrectly uh, or in, in, in pieces and parts can actually pro- probably cause more problems than it that it serves. And I think that's partly where we see product managers running into problems. In many organizations, it's 
a process that's driven by development. So the decision to use Agile or, or change the way they're doing Agile is driven by the engineering organization. So they're really just thinking about, no offense to engineering, but they're thinking about you know predictability and throughput and things like that. And what we see is when product managers are involved in that, oftentimes there's a disconnect between what's happening in the agile process and what's hap- what should be happening in the product life cycle. So for example, you know, we're, we're writing stories, we're doing backlog grooming, we're doing sprint planning, and we're getting stuff out the door, but it's not necessarily connected to the bigger picture or the things that we're working on in the sprint are not the most important things that we should be working on or the highest value things. Or we're doing things at a sprint level, but because we're so focused on delivery, we don't necessarily let other people in the organization know what we're working on. So I talked to a lot of marketing teams where they have a really bad taste in their mouth with Agile because they say, hey, now with Agile, customers will hear about new features in our product before we do. Or, you know, the product team will come to us and say, hey, we're ready. We're going to launch this thing next week. Can you guys prepare for the launch? And that doesn't give us any lead time. So we've developed a model we call our Agile engine. And it basically is this idea that if you think about a, a car engine, and I'll say I'm not a car person, so <laughs> I'm not up on all the terminology. You've got, you know, different flywheels in the engine that are all connected by belts. And if you imagine, you know, if those belts weren't there, the car wouldn't run, right? One part of the engine would be moving, but it wouldn't be powering everything else in the car. And I think that's what we see a lot in organizations where there's this engine, this flywheel of agile development happening, but it's not synced up with release planning or it's not synced up with the roadmap. So yes, we're getting a lot of stuff done really quickly and maybe the quality is better, but it's not connected to the product strategy and the roadmap. And and there's this, uh, I think, false belief many times that, oh, we're agile. We don't need to plan. We don't need to, you know, do roadmaps. We don't need to do requirements. We don't need to do business cases. And the reality is, you know, with an agile project, you don't just wake up one day and throw a bunch of developers in a room and say, all right, start writing code, right? You still have to have a vision and a strategy and the goals and objectives and things like that. So when we work with teams that are struggling with agile, a lot of times what we find is that there's this disconnect between the agile team and and the life cycle. And so it's not about throwing away all the stuff we did before. It's about saying, look, how do we change what we do in an agile environment? And how do we connect what we're doing at a sprint level to the bigger picture. So it's not that we don't do roadmaps, it's just we don't maybe do three-year roadmaps at excruciating detail. We say, look, here's what we can commit to for the next release. And maybe that's at a higher level and we have some projections beyond that, but those are centered more around themes or needs rather than specific commitments that we've made. So you know, product management needs to change, right? A little bit in agile environments to depending upon what they had been a accustomed to, I'd say, in the past. Accurate? Yeah, definitely. I think there's two sides, but yes. So product management definitely needs to change and adjust. I think there's also some things that product management needs to do the same. And I think that's where sometimes we see people throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, oh, you know, I use the analogy of a pendulum, right? You know, the pendulum was all the way on one side and it was like, oh, we're big, heavy, waterfall traditional. And, you know, every single thing we could think of is documented before we start writing a line of code. And then people said, oh, no, we're going to be agile. And the pendulum swung all the way to the other side. And we say, we don't need to document anything. We come up with new stuff. And the reality is there's a balance in the middle. And so I think, you know, it's, yes, you do need to work differently, like you said, but there's also some things you still need to do. We still need to understand customers. We still need to have a you know process that we go through to validate ideas. We still need to let marketing and sales and other functions know when when we do release planning rather than just throwing something at them and expecting them to react. 
Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. That was going to be my second half of that. And we can't throw everything they were doing before out, right? <laughs> it's about taking what they are doing and adapting it to work better in the environments, not 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 doing it. <laughs> yeah, one of the things we actually developed, we call it, we talk about agile adaptation, right? And we say there's, I call it the five R's, the different things that change or stay the same. And I'll see if I can remember them off the top of my head. So, you know, releases, right? How we do release is different, right? So it's not that we're going to stop doing releases, but the way we approach releases are different. Uh, roles and responsibilities change. You know, we have this addition of the product owner and there's a set of responsibilities there. How we do research changes. So it's not that we don't do customer research and it's not that we skip that upfront research, but we adjust it. Requirements change. So, you know, we are going to write user stories, but we still need to have some context for the user stories. And our roadmaps change, right? So again, we still need to have a roadmap, but maybe the depth of detail, the timeline changes. And I would say on that one specifically, I don't know if it's really as much changing the way that we did traditionally, because oftentimes the way we did roadmaps, even in the traditional waterfall environment was not the greatest. So we, our view is, you know, for each of those, those five R's, six, if you count roles and responsibilities as, as each of their own. But yeah, we, we basically say, look, you know, what are things that stay the same and what are things that need to adapt and how do you need to adapt those things to work effectively in an agile environment? Yeah, and we have arithmetic too, like new math, right? <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about the traits now for product, for the modern product manager. What's optimal traits? I think you, you wrote in the past about 10 of those, right? Are they still 10 optimal traits you look for? Yeah, there's, so yeah, I, I did a presentation. This was probably about 10 years or so ago on, on traits for product managers. Yeah, you know, I, I actually haven't looked at that in a while, so I'll have to see if anything's changed. I think they're probably the same. I mean, the ones that, I, if I had to pick one, maybe that's probably most important. It's this concept of empathy. And certainly empathy for customers and the users and, you know, buyers and, and have, being able to empathize with the market. Really, if we can have empathy for, you know, what our customers and what our users are going through, I think we can be more effective as product managers. And, and I think that, you know, we like to think of that traditionally as, oh, well, you know, yeah, sure, we want to understand the market. But even things like when you're thinking about competition, a lot of times, Product managers, anytime they hear any information about the competition, they get very defensive. Like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I know they said they like that thing better than that other product, but ours is better and ours has more features and ours is faster. But, you know, understanding, we're, let's, let's understand why our customers like competitors better and what they might be doing better than us and, and why that may actually be okay and how can we learn from that. And I think also empathy takes another form in terms of internal relationships. You know, just personally, I've worked with, I've been in organizations and, and worked with some product managers who are really smart people who know the customers, who know the market, can you know have all the skills, but they did not have empathy for the developers or for the marketers or for you know finance people. So they would you know create unrealistic demands or you know kind of expect that these people are you know working for them rather than we're working with them. And I think part of being an effective product manager is having that empathy for you know when you go to development and say hey I you know rather than just saying, you got to do this thing, I need it, this customer is asking for it, saying, hey, you know, I know I asked you last week to do this, and it was a special request, and, I, and I'm conscious that I'm asking you to do something else, but here's why. Let me, what what challenges are you having, and how can I help you with that? And I think that's quite frankly one of the things that I, I feel like I did well when I had a team I was working with, a development team in particular, is being able to really understand what they were going through and and really take that approach of, they're, they're part of the team, we're all in this together, and so if we can have empathy for our customers and users and our internal stakeholders, I think that can allow us to be more effective at getting things done in the organization and obviously getting the right things done. 
Yeah, I'm looking at your list of 10 right now. So empathy was definitely one of them. Uh, it was number two on the list. And it's something I've heard over and over again. I always ask product managers, product leaders, you know, three words to describe themselves. And empathy is probably a word I hear the most, if not maybe the second most. I, I would say the most. And, and the second most is probably your number one on this list, which is passion. Yeah. So, you know, there's nine others we can probably talk about. I think passion is important. And, and it's interesting because I think when I did that presentation originally, I referred to it and I talked about it in terms of passion for, you know, the, the space you're working in, right? Like if you're working on an application that is for expense reporting and you're not really excited about expense reporting, then I think you can be a good product manager, but I don't know if you're going to be a you know outstanding product manager, right? I think you got to have something where every day you wake up and you're excited about the problem space and you're excited about, you know, helping people. I think that, that passion can come. I'd say maybe what I've maybe changed my thinking a bit in the past decade or so is really more about, I think passion is not as much for like the industry or for the product, but maybe more about the problem, right? Passionate about, you know, hey, I'm passionate about solving this problem. And, and I've worked in a number of different industries and some of them, most of them, I didn't have any background before I went into the industry. But over time, you start to develop empathy for the customers and empathy for the problems. And you say, hey, you know, I wouldn't have thought that I would get really excited about this problem, but here I am. And I think, again, that's what helps you when you're working with people internally. It helps you overcome those obstacles. I think it is, yeah, it's key. I mean, I think without passion, I think you can be probably decent at your job, but I don't know if you can be great at your job. Yeah, but you raised to a good point there that I want to make sure doesn't get lost. You know, it's important to be passionate about the problem and the solution you're providing, but not necessarily about the product, right? You want, and it ties back into that empathy. You want to help your customers, you know, solve X, Y, Z, or or not have the pain of ABC, but it's not as much about the product you're providing. It's how you help them solve their issues or get their jobs done, right? Exactly. It's, you know, because the reality is products go through a life cycle and most of us, you know, the products we're working on are not going to be around forever. So the products will come and go and new products will come about. But if you're passionate about the problem and the, and you're passionate about helping people, helping your users, your customers, then it'll help fuel, you know, new products you might create or changes to your product. You might, you know, look, if, if you're empathetic and you have passion, you might say, hey, the best thing we can do is kill off this product and create a new one, right? I mean, I, I always like to joke that most people don't raise their hands and say they're excited about end of lifeing a product, but it's it's an important part, especially in larger organizations with larger portfolios. So, and I think if you get too attached to the product, you you miss out on those other opportunities, and also then you kind of start falling victim to this this hubris of you know our product's great, everyone else is horrible. Why don't you like our product? Here's how, you know what what can we do to make it better versus really having that objective view. And, and that actually leads to third on your list, which is humility. But we, we won't go through all of them. We'll take it to a little different direction. You know, tips for new PMs, right? We, we've talked about a, a lot of different things here. But if if you, and I'm sure you are, if you're approached by a guy just getting in or, or a woman just getting into the product management field, you know, what tips would you give them? So I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I'll keep going back to my my standard, I think, things that I've said before, right? I think the best thing you can do as a new product manager is to really understand your customers, your users, and their needs. You know, yes, you need to learn about the product, but there's lots of other people you know, who know about the product and you can spend time learning about the product. I've seen a lot of things recently where people say, oh, you know, you need to learn how to code and need to know technology. And I think there's a certain level of understanding of how the product is built and runs that you need to understand. But I worry that sometimes that is overemphasized. You need to know enough 
to know what is possible from a technology standpoint. You need to know enough to, to call people on it if they say something can't be done or it's too hard or too expensive. But if I was building a product team, I would much rather have product managers who were spending time with customers, understanding the problem deeply, understanding the market and the competition. So I would say that, that'd be my first thing. You know, If someone's taking a new product manager job for the first time, understand the customers, understand what problems they have. You can come in with a fresh point of view and be humble and you can be objective and not be colored by your opinions. I think the second thing is then building those relationships internally and really understanding the role of product management at your organization and you know what has worked and what you can probably improve upon. Because product managers, and I say this in the nicest way, they can't get anything done by themselves, right? You know, you're not pretty much everything you do as a product manager requires working with developers or marketers or finance or legal or anyone. So understanding who those key players are and building those relationships. And it's not, you know, they're working for us, but again, you know, taking the same approach. I think if you can build those relationships early, that can help you out a lot. And I think the other thing is it may be more tactical of, you know, then deliver something, right? If you spend the first six months doing customer research and having these internal meetings, but don't actually show any results, I think that's going to harm your credibility. And it's going to cause people to say, well, you know, nice person, uh, I get along with them, seem to know a lot, but they haven't done anything. So looking for, you know, maybe not the big, huge game changers, but are there some quick wins that can solve some problems for customers, can benefit the product, can maybe help out some people internally and being able to take some of that knowledge and apply it pretty quickly. So talk to me about the future. Talk about what trends you see in the next few years that will affect the craft of product management. Well, you know, I'm not a uh, fortune teller. <laughs> if I knew exactly what the future held, I'd, I'd probably be doing a number of different things. But I, I always like to start looking back, well, how was it different five years ago, right? So if we say, what's it going to be like five years from now? I look back, what was different about product management five years ago? I think a lot of the fundamentals were the same. Certainly, we're seeing more of a focus on the product delivery side of things with, with Agile becoming even more entrenched with Lean. I think we're seeing a lot more companies move towards obviously SaaS models. It, it's interesting. We work with lots of B2B companies in lots of industries, even those in you know advanced manufacturing or quote unquote, you know older school industries are still doing a lot of software development. So I, I think I would expect that to continue. As we see companies looking more at recurring revenue models, obviously, it's not just enough to say, how do we get people to buy the product once, but how do we get them to be happy with the product and continue to use it and continue to engage? So I think more of a focus on what do product managers need to do once the product's in the market beyond just, you know, are we continuing to sell it, but our, what's our lifecycle management approach? How are we prioritizing enhancements? How are we engaging with our customers? I think that's becoming more important. And one trend we're seeing that a lot of our clients are asking us about is we're hearing more and more companies proactively talk about solutions. Not just, you know, hey, how can we bundle a bunch of our products together and give a discount? But really, we want to build platforms, we want to build solutions. So solutions management as a role, as a function, we're starting to hear more and more about. Less about how, you know, how do I make my product successful? But hey, my product is part of this platform and our, our strategy is to sell an integrated solution. You know, the, the classic you know, one plus one equals three example. So I think we view solution management as almost product management plus. It, it's all the same things that product management does, but at a higher level of, you know, how do we coordinate across business units or how do we coordinate across technology platforms? And yes, we can still sell individual products and we still probably do need to do that, but orienting more towards, all right, we put more of a focus on solutions going forward. And I think that is going to then mean that the skills and the competencies required for product managers is going to change and shift a little bit. Interesting. So we'll talk about you a little bit. What's your favorite software product or product and why is it your favorite? 
<laughs> so I'll say one that I don't know if it's my favorite, but one that I realized that I had been using a lot and it's become just a huge part of my day every day or every week is a app called Stitcher. It's a podcast app. I don't know if you guys, are you on Stitcher? This we host on SoundCloud, but I've checked out okay. Stitcher. <laughs> so, I mean, I know there's a bunch out there. I, I, Stitcher was one of the first ones. I just happened to use it. And I think what I've learned is that I kind of have some certain habits. So what I like is that it's able to kind of adjust to my habits. So I can say, look, you know, on the mornings, this is what I listen to in the afternoons, if I have time or in the evening I have this. And one of the things that I, I didn't realize how much I liked it until on the load, loading screen, it shows, you know, how many total hours you've listened to. And I realized I'm about to hit the thousand hour mark. And so I think that's just an indication of um, how reliant I have become on it. When I run or go biking, I listen to it in the morning when I'm getting ready, I listen to it. Anytime I have a question about a topic or I hear about a new podcast or something, that's where I go. One of the things I'll, I'll just say, one of the specific features I like, and I think most apps have it at this point now, but there's a couple of podcasts I really like to listen to that I find the people talk very slowly and I'm a little impatient. So it allows me to, you know, adjust the speed, even like fine tune the speed I can adjust. So that helps me be more uh, judicious about my time and more efficient with getting through all the all the great things out there that I want to listen to. Cool. I'm gonna have to spend a little bit more time with it. So we've talked about a lot today. If you were gonna summarize some of the the most important things into kind of the Jeff Lash words of wisdom, <laughs> you know, what would you want to impart to others in product leadership? So I'll, I'll start with one of the things I mentioned, maybe not the first thing, but I think collaboration, I think is, is key, right? We talk a lot about, you know, what should product managers do and the, the activities and things, but, you know, you can't get a product out the door by yourself. And the product managers that I've seen that are most effective and successful are ones that have good relationships, they collaborate well, they inspire people. So, you know, it's not about having some magic formula for here's how we decide which story goes in the next sprint. It's you know more important if we can inspire the developers to understand why this is an important story to work on and maybe get them to come up with unique ways of solving a problem that we wouldn't have otherwise. You know, this is a team effort. We talk about product teams. So being effective collaborator, I think is important. I've mentioned empathy, but I, I think it's worth stressing because it's still an area that I think that a lot of people may pay lip service to, but you know, one of the, you know, like, like I said, I, I had a sign in my office, you know, how many days has it been since I last talked with a customer? It's a question I like to ask clients sometimes. I'll say, you know, when, how many customers have you talked with this week or this month? And oftentimes they laugh uncomfortably <laughs> and try and change the topic. But, you know, we can talk about understanding the market and how important it is, but we need to put our actions where our mouth is. And I think the last thing is probably to try and get out of the day to day. And I know that's easier said than done, but one technique I really like is just leveraging your calendar. So when I talk to teams about, you know, competitive analysis or thinking about the future and future roadmap planning or even customer research, they'll say, well, yeah, I know I should do that, but it's just hard to find time. And so what I always tell people is, look, if you look at your calendar tomorrow, you probably don't have any free time or next week, maybe not free time. But if you look at your calendar three weeks out or four weeks out, right, you should see some free blocks. Well, you're in charge of your calendar. So block some time and make it happen. So rather than just trying to put out the fires that come out every day, you know, if you want to do some analysis of a new competitor that you think is on the horizon, block a time to do that. If there's a new technology you think might impact your product, great, block some time and make it happen. I can't make you do it, but I can at least give you some strategies to do that. And I think if you're able to block some time and really get out of the day-to-day -day and think about six months, nine months, 12 months, whatever beyond and what things might be coming, 
I think it allows you to have that perspective. And if you do that on a routine basis, you'll find that actually, you know, that is time really, really well spent. Yeah, I would say, especially if you manage people, an empty calendar gets filled. So block that time, right? And people are, and I, you know, uh, you know, I know how it works, right? You, someone says, you know, I know you have that Friday from two to four block, but I really need to, you know, and you have a choice. You can, you can say yes or say no. And, and it's not that you always have to say no, but, you know, I think the more you can protect that time and, and not just say no to people, but explain, look, I, I know you want me to be in this meeting, but here's why it's really important that I'm not in that meeting. Here's what I'm doing with my time that will ultimately benefit the product. And Or I think not, even better, just don't show why it's blocked. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, <laughs> Avoid yes. those questions altogether. And then the salesperson comes and says, well, I'm not sure why it's blocked, but I've got this client meeting that I really need you on, right? So um, Another sales guy, bigger deal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, it, and I'll say it's tough. And, and even in my, my job right now, I'm, I'm not as good at this as, as I'd like to be, but I try to find time to do it. I think, you know, those are, I think, three things. Those aren't the only things, but I think if you can really focus on collaboration and, and developing those interlock with those functions, if you can really develop empathy and make sure that that's part of your day-to-day work. And if you can leave some time for the strategic thinking, you will be probably well ahead of, of many other uh, of your competitors. So one, one final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself, work-related or just as general? <laughs> you could go either way with this. <laughs> so I'll say, let's see, I'm going to say helpful. I've spent a lot of my, what I call extracurricular time over the past decade or so, you know, I think trying to help the product management community, writing blog posts, answering a lot of questions. And, you know, when people have questions about getting into product management or how to find a, you know, transition, things like that. So I try to help people. And I think a lot of what I do in my day-to-day work at Serious Decisions is really being helpful to our clients, providing them with advice and guidance and perspective. And sometimes it's just being an ear to listen when they have some challenges. I'm going to be a bit non-humble and say humorous, hopefully. I, I, I hope my humor comes across. I try to, I know sometimes when you're writing blog posts or you're, you know, writing tweets and things like that, it's a bit hard in a dry medium, but I, I, I like to take a, hopefully a humorous perspective. And the third is passionate. I think I'll go back to one of your things earlier. I, I really truly am, I think in my, my Twitter profile, if I remember, it says something like, you know, passionate about helping product managers succeed and helping B2B companies thrive, right? So I really am passionate about this. We, we talked about it's important for product managers to be passionate about what they do. And I think that's part of one thing why I'm, I'm so excited and I really love what I do at Serious Decisions is because, yeah, I'm passionate about different industries and technologies I've worked on. But I think I realized and, and uh, that I was really passionate about helping product managers. And I was lucky enough to find a, a job where, where I'm able to do that on a day-to-day basis. I get to talk with product managers. I get to talk with product leaders and executives and I hope that I think I'm helping them and I hope that my passion comes through in in the work that I do with them. Well, thanks, Jeff. This has been awesome. Greatly appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. I've enjoyed it. And if people have questions, they can certainly reach out to me. I'm on Twitter as Jeff Lash. That's probably the best way to uh, send a direct message or, or reply and I will get back to you. And I'm hopeful that I'll get to at least hear from people or maybe meet them in person face to face at some point. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And I know you have some uh, product management jokes there. So I've, I've read a few <laughs> of your jokes on Twitter. Oh, I didn't, I didn't say it was good humor. I just said it was, you know, hopefully humorous. But yes, the, <laughs> the, the product management bar joke, we had a, a good a, a good stream going there for a while. Maybe we need to resurrect that a bit. I, I think that's probably a good way to end. Uh, you know, what's <laughs> what's your favorite product management bar joke? My favorite product, I don't have a favorite. I don't know. It's like my children. They're, they're, I love them all in different ways. Well, let's um, just pick one then. I think there was one recently that people seemed to enjoy, which was uh, 
product manager walks into a bar, except it was really a cardboard box with a paper cup on it. And that was like the, the that was our minimum viable product, something like that. So it, if you if you search for the hashtag prod MGMT bar joke, you will see some of them. And I encourage others to contribute their own because I'm sure you have ones that are just as good, if not better than mine. <laughs> Sounds great, Jeff. Thanks again. Thanks. Take care.